welcome to this Spectator podcast in partnership with Phoenix Group, the UK's largest long-term savings and retirement business. I'm Martin van der Weer. I'm the business editor of The Spectator, and it's my pleasure to host this discussion on the implications of an aging population, of living longer. What does that mean for work and what does it mean for health? I'm delighted to be joined by three distinguished guests. They are Dame Carol Black, who is a leader of the British medical profession, a former president of the Royal College of Physicians, a former advisor to the British government on the relationship between work and health, and currently chair of the Centre for Aging Better. Our second guest is Guy Opperman, MP, who is Minister of State for Employment at the Department of Work and Pensions and previously was Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Pensions and Financial Inclusion. And our third guest is Catherine Foote, Director of Phoenix Insights. So I'm going to just start with Catherine. I know you've got some new research out on this subject. Just tell us a tiny bit about Phoenix Insights and how you come at this subject matter. Thanks, Martin. So... I'm part of Phoenix Group, which is the largest long-term savings and retirement business in the UK. We've got 13 million customers and about 8,000 staff and have set up Phoenix Insights, this new think tank, a centre for research, analysis and also broad public engagement, really in recognition of both the challenge and the opportunity that we as individuals and us collectively as a nation are faced with in light of our now much longer lives that we can enjoy than previous generations. We face as individuals a risk now that perhaps we, we faced less before that we will outlive our money and that we will outlive our health and outlive our sense of, of purpose and community. And so at Phoenix Insights, we're seeking to find new answers, new solutions, both at the level of public policy and of business and employer action, and for individuals to take for themselves, so that we can all actually make the most of the fantastic opportunity that these longer lives could present if we're supported better to think about our own futures and what we want out of our retirement, to plan effectively for that and work as long as we want and need. Thank you. That's a very concise introduction to the subject. So we take it as a given that we are, the whole world population is living longer. Indeed, we've just learned that it, it, the world population, just passed 8 billion, not because birth rates are rising in most places, but because death is getting further away in most places. That being the case, there are, as you say, there are money implications, there are health implications, there are political implications, and there are work or employment implications. And let's try and knock all four of those around in the course of the next half hour. So if I may, first of all, invite Carol Black to set out for us some of the health and health care implications of this increasing longevity and the fact that now working age has ceased to have a precise meaning. It's as long as it can be, but it's definitely getting longer. What does that mean in health terms? Well, Martin, thank you. 
in order to be in work, whatever your age, you have to have a certain level of mental and physical health. There comes a level at which it's almost impossible to go to work or be in work if you haven't got that. And I am really concerned that as people age at the moment, they're not accruing enough health assets to be able to go on working up to and indeed beyond what we used to think of as as the retirement age. So, for example, many more long-term conditions such as diabetes, obesity, of course, can complicate life and causes heart disease, vascular disease. We have musculoskeletal problems. And if you think about it, as you age, you tend to get perhaps wear and tear arthritis. You might need a new knee or a new hip to keep you in work. But at the moment, we have very long NHS waiting lists. So a whole host of things are coming in to make it more difficult, even though we're living longer, to be active in the workplace. And then remember... In addition, there are more people caring for others in their family, so they need more flexibility at work. They may be actually spending time not only with the young in their family, but with the middle-aged and the older members of their family. So there's a whole host of things that we need to get right to enable people to make the most of this longevity, and it doesn't start when you're 50. It starts when you're born. I see it as accruing assets as you go through life so that you're really healthy soil when you get to your 50s and you can go on, as Catherine has said, work as long as you would like to or indeed need to and enjoy it. But you do need the employer to be part of this agenda as well as government. Let's come to that. So am I right to understand there's a bit of a myth in modern life, that because we live longer, we think people must be fitter for longer. But that's not the case. We live longer because heart treatments are more effective or some other parts of medicine. Infection is not around. It's for one of the biggest reasons why. Yeah. But actually, we're not fitter. And I think Mm. from your work, we understand that we're in worse shape than we were. And COVID hasn't helped at all. And COVID has landed on less healthy soil than you would have wished. And then it's kept us at home. So I use the word deconditioned, that we've not been using our musculoskeletal system as much. Many of us have not been as physically active. And therefore, you know, maybe you think, do I really feel I can go back to work when COVID has ended? We need to get people back to work. And so we need to think of how we're going to do this through lots of agencies. Okay, one of which is, of course, politics. So, Guy, you're the minister responsible for getting Britain back to work after COVID. But we've heard that there's a health problem. It's partly an NHS problem. Lay out some figures for us about how many people you need to get back to work to make the economy itself more healthy now. So I was delighted to be offered the job by the Prime Minister of being Minister for Employment, but there is no doubt that the task is immense on any interpretation. So we have a very substantial proportion of the population is what is called economically inactive. 
of which there is a substantial proportion of that of the over 50s who are economically inactive. At the same stage, we have over 1.2 million vacancies in this country. And my job fundamentally is to marry up the vacancies that exist out there with the workforce that is either economically inactive who want to go back to work or those who are on universal credit or those who are in other different types of welfare support and genuinely to try and match those two up. And in the circumstances, in my view, where my work as pensions minister, and I worked with Catherine in my former life as pensions minister, I genuinely feel can help because there are effectively three interventions I'd give you. The first is the direct point of contact is job centres. So up and down the country, you have job centres dealing with a vast cohort of individuals who are trying to either do what is called in-work progression, so someone is working but then wants to do better and well, more well-paid jobs, or they want to get into work generally and they have to try and assist them into that process. The second is, what does employers do and how are we changing the workforce? In my view, you look at flexible working. And I've seen a lot of businesses most recently who are in circumstances where traditionally they'd be offering nine to five employment or seven till six employment overnight. And those days are gone. The employee needs and wants flexible working. And I think that is the future. And the employers that are doing that are finding that they are being able to satisfy their vacancy problems way more easily. And that matters because that particularly applies to the elderly population, the over 50s population. And that particularly applies for those who have health conditions in whatever shape or form. And that particularly applies to disability employment. Now, we'll come on to things like the midlife MOT and big interventions that government is trying to plan. But the bottom line is that you have to decide whether your glass is half full or half empty. And my glass is fundamentally half full. And I say that because, yes, we, you know, Carol is dead right that this country was having issues that then got worse through COVID. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. We all know that there is an NHS backlog, that there is some people with long COVID, and that various people have struggled through the pandemic. But at the same stage, if I look at all the markers of, you know, where are we on over 50s employment? Over 50s employment, where, you know, there are 10.6 million workers aged 50 plus in the UK. That is up 600,000 over the last five years and up 2 million over the last decade. Disability employment has gone through the roof in terms of, you know, if we had a conversation 10 or 20 years ago, disability employment was relatively limited and it is now hugely accepted and it is, the, the numbers are massively enhanced. There's still loads more to do, but my glass is half full in those circumstances. Okay, fine. Catherine, tell us a bit more about what a good employer should be doing to address these issues. So we've heard about flexible working hours. That's one thing. We ought to be talking a bit about reskilling. I mean, training older people into entirely new career paths, perhaps. Or is that a kind of pie-in-the-sky idea? How do you start on this problem? Well, we're a long way, I think, in this economy from a country that really invests in adult education and reskilling and retraining. I'd agree with Guy that my glass is also half full on the bigger picture. I think there's lots going for us in this country to turn this problem around. You look at, you look at America, for instance, there are huge disincentives on employers in America to not employ and upskill and retain older workers who bring with them potentially higher health insurance costs, the burden of which, of course, falls on, employers, on large employers in, in the States. We don't have that in this country. We have 
the NHS. We have, in other countries, a default retirement age. You, you're just forced out at a certain age in some countries. We ban that in this country. But I think perhaps one of the areas we need to focus on most urgently and most intensively is your point, Martin, about, about reskilling and retraining. About 70% of employers haven't offered their employees any training in the last 12 months. Business investment in adult education, training and skills is in decline. We don't have a culture of lifelong learning in this country. And I would urge Guy to work with his, you know, his opposite numbers in the Department for Education to redress that balance, because I think it's what absolutely it critical. Be? I mean, if you could get Guy to commit to a programme during this podcast... Would it be, for instance, software coding? Is that what people should be learning in their 50s? Or other skills that older people naturally have that can be redeployed so they don't have to learn something that's completely alien to them but totally familiar to their grandchildren, if you see what I mean? Absolutely. Where, where do you point people? Well, the answers will be different for different industries, inevitably, and for different individuals. I think there's a huge role that you're already seeing being capitalised on in some industries around training and mentorship So rather than exiting the labour force, you encourage your older workers to stay on, to train and mentor younger employees in that industry, in that type of work. But of course, there there are all sorts of different routes that will be relevant for different industries in different places and different individuals. I think we probably, in my view, need to to offer more incentives, bursaries, grants and support in those skill shortage industries. Because actually, when you're an older worker, when you're a, a working adult, maybe with a mortgage or rent, maybe children, maybe aging parents to care for, you have a lot of stuff in your life and dependencies that make it hard for you to choose to take that time out and take that risk to retrain. So I think we need to recognise those difficulties for people and support them better. OK, I'm going to come back to Carol in a moment, but let me just get Guy to respond to that. How, how much can you, you know, interfere in detail and try and design programmes in detail? Or do you want to just make it fertile for employers to come up with the programmes that suit them? So I'm at the spectator, so I've got to say both. Because really? it is unquestionably the case that we need employers to lead. But at the same stage, there are policies that government can do, and I'll give you one specific one, that we've already instituted and we're rolling it out across the country. And Catherine will have heard me speak about this, which is called the Midlife MOT. Hmm. So the Midlife MOT takes people between the ages of 45 and 55 and looks at wealth, work and well-being. And so, bluntly, the well-being goes to Carol's point, which is we all are entitled to an annual checkup. Very few of us get it. We are all entitled to health interventions in various ways. We need to encourage people to do that. The work stuff deals with retraining and reskilling and upskilling and explaining and particularly to individuals between 45 and 55 that you're probably not going to be doing the job that you're presently doing when you are 60, 64 and so on and even into retirement. So how is it we're going to navigate you from your present position into a job that will probably not be full-time, but maybe part-time, that will be a different type of job, but uses all the muscle memory that you have? And the best example was Aviva, who did a trial of this. They found most of their staff of 45 to 55 were looking to leave. Having done 25 years in insurance, Lord love insurance, but they decided it wasn't for them long term. 
But of course, once they did a midlife MOT, they all then decided to stay. Why? Because they realized they could do flexible working in their 50s and 60s, because they realized that the job they're presently doing might train them for something else and they would be given further training. And because they finally, crucially, on wealth, which is the biggest driver of all individuals, they didn't have the finances that they thought they had to retire with if they were to retire, say, at 54, given that their likely longevity had massively increased and therefore they'd have to support themselves in a lifestyle that would be dramatically lower than they might have anticipated without that education. Okay, thank you. Carol, let me come back to you. Taking in that point about the midlife MOT and so on, what would you prioritise, given the extremely scarce resources of the NHS now, given you can't make people travel back in time and be healthier in their 30s and 40s, so they're much healthier in their 50s and 60s and beyond. What would you prioritise now to alleviate the problems we're talking about? Well, I think the employer can alleviate a lot. So I think you need leadership from the top of an organisation that says we care about your health and well-being. You need a board of an organisation. There is evidence that if the board of an organisation has reported to it the health and well-being of their workforce, just as much as they get the finance, it is taken seriously and good things happen. And then you must train your middle managers. These are the cultural things about an organisation. They may seem a long way away from the bad hip, but they're about creating and embedding a culture of health and well-being for whatever age group, but particularly for the 50-plus, with perhaps a slight focus that is different from the 20-year-olds. And it's the line manager being attuned to really having the right conversations. Remember, mental health is one of the great reasons why people decide they've had enough, they're going to leave. It really is in the manager's gift to create that culture. And then, I mean, the MOT is an excellent idea. And that people can then start to think about what can they do. The employer, once they know what their demographics are, can put in evidence-based interventions, or at least interventions that have been shown to have some validity. We're not very good on the research on workplace interventions, but you can design your interventions to suit your demographics. And then, of course, we've got access to work, which Guy hasn't mentioned, but access to work is a great help for both the mental and physical ailments that people get as they get older. There's so much that can be done to encourage people back to work. Also, when you're in work, the right chair, or if you've got a bad knee, can you have a desk near the loo? I mean, they're very practical things. There's so much that would help people come back to work. So flexibility, hiring without bias, thinking about the health needs of the 50-plus, and making sure we're training, we've covered... But the culture, if you have a culture that says, once you get to a certain age, I don't really care about your health and well-being because you're a bit on the scrap heap, they're not on the scrap heap. And intergenerational working is crucial. I think companies, there's good research, shows that companies that have real intergenerational working are more productive. But there is a fantastic point as well, which is, Look at this part for a moment, all the employees and all the people I'm trying to get into work. 
Look at the, from the business standpoint, the idea that as you have an aging population and over a million vacancies, that you're going to ignore the older worker is insanity. And you as a business have got to look at the cohorts that you've got and the jobs you have and think, if I haven't got a proactive approach to hiring over 50s, I am genuinely not doing a good service to my business. And, and that, frankly, because it's bluntly factual that there is... You know, you have a large number of older workers which are going to get bigger and then over 50s will get larger in circumstances where we've got a lot of vacancies. So those employers who are saying, look, we are open to business and we're open for over 50s will then get those employees. And those who aren't necessarily flexible, as Carol has outlined, will struggle. And it's just practical business that they've got to be more welcoming. I'm interested that your reply to my last question, Carol, was entirely in terms of what employers can do and do better rather than what, for instance, the NHS could do or do better or do differently or reallocate resources and so on. So is that because you, you despair of the NHS or, or because no. you think this is a problem for employers? No, I don't despair of the NHS. And, of course, they've got huge challenges. I mean, frankly, I don't know whether they do look at their, if you like, their musculoskeletal problems in the 50-plus. So let's say you have X thousand of people who need a knee and a hip, and that's keeping them from working or working well. You know, can we link up the needs of, if you like, the 50-plus with their health needs to our employment needs? That would really, for me, be a very good cross-government way of thinking about this, that what is it that is stopping these people going into work if it's something the health service could help with? But, you know, I acknowledge that... I mean, this is not easy. And then you would have to be rather carefully presented policy that said we're doing more knee operations to improve productivity in <laughs> in the economy. But still, you can see where that goes, Catherine. How do we link all these strands together? I'd like to come back to what Guy mentioned about about flexible working, and what Carol you said about not just the role of of boards a point relevant to large employers, perhaps, but also to those shifts in culture and small changes that can be made. Because I think a huge part of the answer to this challenge lies in those issues of, of just the, you know, the, the quality of the job, the nature of the job, the offer of that job for people. And small shifts can make all the difference. We did some work recently comparing people over 50 in the UK with people in over 50 in Germany and America, exploring why they've left after the pandemic and you know what it would take to bring them back. And we found that workers in the UK in that age group have been much more affected by their experience of the pandemic. Consider that to be a much stronger effect for them, not necessarily on their feelings of of poor health, although that's part of it, but actually more on on a kind of complex mix of pros and cons of whether work fits with what else they want to be doing in their lives or need to be doing in their lives for their family and other things. That pros and cons list of is work worth it for me anymore has shifted for this age group or for some in this age group in this country in a way it hasn't so much in other countries. So I think we need to make work more attractive again. And I totally endorse what you were saying, 
Guy and what you were saying, Carol, about the sorts of role that employers need to play to make those jobs more attractive and appealing for people. And exactly as you say, Guy, if you don't, you're just simply not fishing in the biggest possible pool for your talent, are you? You're just missing an enormous trick. Phoenix Group has just partnered with a sort of specialist, specialist company to advertise and recruit older workers in a few bits of our business. And one of them is, is customer service. Recognising actually that post the pandemic, with flexible working, hybrid working, you don't need to be running customer service teams in kind of big box call centres. People can do this work from home. And actually, wouldn't pensions customers quite like to be talking to somebody that sounds a bit more like them than somebody in their early 20s uh, when they pick up the phone to try and get some, some advice and support and take some decision about their, their pension? So I think, you know, some businesses have woken up to the potential value of older workers to their business. And I think it is only those that do, quite frankly, that will that will succeed in the coming decades in this economy. We are an utterly service-driven economy. Investing in our human capital is the only or the principal answer to achieving economic growth, I think. And we all need to get better at investing in that. And when a new potential new client comes to Phoenix for retirement advice, have you reached a point where you actually give as part of the advice the idea that carrying on part-time working until you're 70 uh, with some kind of earned income is a much sounder way forward than trying to make modest savings stretch for 30-plus years in retirement? Or is that still rather an alien idea? We're exploring taking this intervention that Guy was mentioning of the midlife MOT, where you combine support about money and about work and a career and about wider health and well-being for people, not just for staff, although that's where we're starting in Phoenix, but ultimately, I hope, for customers too. Because, you know, this idea of employers are all the answer doesn't work so well if you're economically inactive. If you don't have an employer, how do you get this help? Mm. Or if you work for a very small business who can't invest in the ways that large businesses can in their staff's health and well-being. So we need to think about answers for the economically inactive, for the people for whom employers aren't the answer. And I think interventions that provide that sort of holistic information and support, they have to be part of the answer. So I think there, there are three things I'd add on to that. I think on the finance issue, there used to be no real capacity for the man or woman in the street to get financial information about their retirement, their assets, their wealth in a way that was trusted on a long-term basis so they then could plan, which then influences the type of job they do. We now have set up a Money Helper with the Money and Pension Service, a free service out there, and the take-up on that is off the charts. There's no doubt whatsoever on that. So there is some sort of interventions that people can get to understand their finances because that drives their, their employment pattern and often where they live, how they live their life. The second is what can government do on skills? So traditionally, the concept of lifelong learning did not really exist. You, you studied in your 20s at most, if you, if you hadn't left school at 16 or 18, and that was it. Now, lifelong learning is accepted. It is totally in order. I met a man from Aviva who was training age 70 to become an actuary. Now, that was my most impressive lifelong learning, but he could live in Northern Ireland, never go to the office and make good money and work with things that he'd known about for some long period of time and have a fantastic part-time job in his retirement. The other thing is this, is there is government interventions that you can do. We already have one, which is really interesting, which is once I reach retirement age, 
and then I'm employed, I don't pay national insurance. Now, that is a positive asset. And if you speak to B&Q, who are the traditional employer of the retirees, they saw it as a commercial advantage because their bill was cheaper for that employee, who they also thought would be flexible working before it was a big thing that everybody did. And also those people turn up on time and they're really good with customers and everything like that. All the points that Catherine makes. But there is a commercial advantage to employing someone over retirement age. So we're going to wind up shortly, but I want to come back to Carol for some final thoughts, particularly you gave us a very clear description of what you think how employers can handle these issues better. For the individual, as a physician, generally speaking, what should people be doing about themselves to improve their chances of working well and living better into these long old ages? Well, of course, if you think about the social determinants of health and and then you think about the things that we ourselves can do, it's going to sound awfully boring and probably, I hope not too nannyish, to say we if we don't smoke, we do better as we go through life. If we get good nutrition and if we can avoid being overweight, that is a great help. How much we alcohol we drink, they're very they seem very boring things and how much physical activity and I don't mean running marathons I just mean really building into your daily life walking or swimming these are the things if you do it it may sound terribly boring but if you do those things regularly they're the things that really can help you be fitter and give you assets as you get into your 50s and 60s I think we shouldn't forget that if you are growing up in poverty and deprivation, you start off in a very different place. I mean, the social determinants of health, if you have poor housing, if you grow up in a family that's addicted or has an addiction problem, we all know the marmot, social determinants of health. But as an individual, we ourselves have got a lot of agency and we can help ourselves I know it's not as easy if you live in a deprived community. You don't have access to such good food. You may not have safe roads to walk in. But they're the sorts of things that we can do for ourselves. I want to give the last word, really, to Catherine again, to sum up in any way you'd like to, from the point of view of Phoenix Insights. I suppose, let me just add, in this question you put to Carol, what can individuals do? I hope that we all get better at checking our own ageism. Carol, you used that phrase on the scrap heap about some perceptions of workers as we get older. And I think there's an undercurrent to the conversation here that lies really in the problem that we are all collectively just tending to give up on ourselves a little too early. Ageism is so so insipidly ingrained in all of us in this society and so inaccurate for lives of the length that we can live now, for health that we can enjoy now, doing us such a tremendous collective disservice. That's not just, you know, employers are as ageist as any of us, as individuals, as as ministers of state, and we all need, I think, to recognise that ageism is something we all hold within us and need to continue to challenge. If we're genuinely going to make the sort of cultural shift that I think this agenda deserves. Splendid. Thank you very much, Catherine Foote of Phoenix Insights. 
So there we are. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast on the issues of living longer. It's in our own hands to live better lives, but it's also in the hands of employers to make the most of older workers and give them the best chances they can have. And it's in the hands of government to nudge us all in the right direction. So thank you very much indeed to Dame Carol Black, Guy Opperman and Catherine Foote. Thank you. Thank you.